in our Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter number 38. Genesis chapter number 38. Again, we're continuing on with our study through the life of Joseph in Genesis chapter number 34 through Genesis chapter number 50. And now we find ourselves in Genesis chapter number 38. And you're going to find that in our chapter tonight, Joseph is not mentioned at all. This is actually not a chapter about Joseph, and so uh, we're going to be looking at the life of Judah, Joseph's brother, uh, Judah. We left off last week again. We were talking about Joseph and how he was on a one-way trip uh, to Egypt because of the callousness of his brother's heart, and uh, more specifically, whose idea was it to sell him to the Midianites? It was Judah's idea, and so we're going to talk a little bit tonight about uh, Judah. Uh, Although Joseph isn't mentioned, we can't just skip chapter number 38. Chapter number 38 is absolutely important in the life of Joseph uh, because it's going to play a serious role later in the life of the nation of Israel we're going to find. And so let's read Genesis chapter number 38. Can I read the whole chapter? Before I read the chapter, I want everybody to listen to me for just a moment. We're going to read Genesis chapter number 38. We've got uh, teenagers and young people in here. This is a dark chapter. It is a dark chapter. If you know uh, about Genesis chapter number 38, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's dark. It's wicked and it's graphic. There's a lot that goes on in Genesis chapter number 38. Uh, And so could you pray for me as I preach through Genesis chapter number 38? Uh, It's it's uncomfortable to preach through Genesis 38, but I can tell you what, we're going to learn something uh, about Judah. We're going to learn something that is applicable to our lives. And so let's look at Genesis chapter number 38. I'd like to read the entire chapter if you don't mind. It's a long chapter, but read silently as I read aloud. It says in verse number one, and it came to pass at the time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a, of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and went in unto her. And she conceived and bare a son, and he called his name Ur. And she conceived again and bare a son, and she called his name Onan. And she yet again conceived and bare a son and called his name Shelah. Yes, Shelah is a guy's name. Uh, and she bare again, and, and called his name Shelah, and he was a uh, Jizib, uh, Excuse me, he was at Jizib when she bare him. And Judah took a wife from Ur, for Ur rather, uh, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. And Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. And Judah said unto Onan, Go in unto thy brother's wife, and marry her, and rise up seed to thy brother. And Onan knew that the seed should not be his, and it came to pass, when he went in unto his brother's wife, that he spilled it on the ground, lest that he should give seed to his brother. Verse 10. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, wherefore he slew him also. Then uh, said Judah to Tamar, his daughter, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow at thy father's house till Shelah... Uh, My son be grown, for he said, lest peradventure he die also, as his brethren did. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. And in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up uh, unto his sheep shearers in Timnath, he and his friend uh, Hira the Adulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goeth up to Timnath to shear his sheep. And she put her widow's garment off from her and covered her with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which is by the way to Timnath, for she saw that Shelah was grown and she was not given unto him to wife. When Judah saw her, he thought her to be a harlot because she had covered her face. And he turned unto her by the way and said, go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. 
for he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What wilt thou give me that thou mayest come in unto me? And he said, I will send thee a kid from the flock. And she said, Wilt thou give me a pledge till uh, thou send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give thee? And she said, Thy signet and thy bracelets and thy staff in thine hand. And he gave it her and came in unto her and conceived by, and she conceived by him. And she arose and went away and laid by her veil from her and put on her garment of her, widow, uh, her widowhood. And Judah sent the kid by the hand of his friend the Adulamite to, rec- uh, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, but he found her not. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot that was openly by the wayside? And they said, There is no harlot in this place. And he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. And also the men of the place said that there was no harlot in this place. And Judah said, let her take it to her, lest we be, uh, lest we be shamed. Behold, I sent this kid, and thou hast not found her. And it came to pass, about three months after that it was told Judah, saying, Tamar, thy daughter-in-law, hath played the harlot, and also, behold, she is with child by whoredom. And Judah said, bring her forth, and let her be burnt. When she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man whose these are, am I with child? And she said, Discern, I pray thee, whose, the, uh, whose are these, the signet and the bracelet and the staff? And Judah acknowledged them and said, She hath been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not to Shelah, my son. And he knew her again no more. Verse 27, And it came to pass in the time of uh, her travail that, behold, twins were in her womb. And it came to pass when she travailed that one put out his hand and the midwife took and bound upon the hand of a scarlet thread saying, This came out first. And it came to pass as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out and she said, How hast thou broken forth? This breach be upon thee. Therefore his name was called Perez. And afterwards came out his brother that had the scarlet thread upon his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Wow. Who needs reality TV when you have the Bible? (laughs) Talk about graphic, talk about disgusting, talk about defiled. Some might look at this passage and wonder, the series is called The Sovereign Hand of God, Joseph, A Story of God's Sovereignty. How on earth could God be sovereign and there be Genesis 38's in the Bible? That's a good question. I'd like us to look at that for just a moment tonight in light of Scripture. Tonight, again, for just a few moments, I'd like us to talk about this subject, God's sovereignty and man's sin. God's sovereignty and man's sin. Let's say a quick word of prayer and we'll begin tonight. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd be with me as I preach tonight. Lord, I need your power. I need you to fill me with your power, Lord, as, as you have taught me this week and you've begun to put things in my mind and I've written them down, Lord, I pray that you would help me to properly articulate everything that you would have me articulate in this passage. It's not an easy passage to preach. It's full of wickedness. It's graphic. It's disgusting. The things that go on, is it puts on fully the dis- depravity of man and the sin of man. Lord, I pray that you'd help me as I preach. Fill me with your power. We need to hear a message from you tonight, Lord. And as we do, I pray that you would help us to make the decision on whether or not we're going to respond to truth. That we would come forward, not just to the altar, but also to go forward in our Christian lives and to advance and to build upon our faith. Lord, you're so good to us, far better than we deserve. Lord, I pray that you'd help me. Help us. I pray that we learn something about you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for enduring that passage. It is, again, we're going to talk about that all night long, but it's a wicked passage. 
So we like to have control. By way of introduction, I'd like to just talk to you for just a moment. We like to have complete control over what we portray to others and how they view us, don't we? We like to have full control. We like to have the pen in our hand and write the narrative of what others think of us. A perfect illustration of that is Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and everything else under the sun on the internet. How many of you know what I'm talking about? A lot of the times you look on the internet to find out about somebody and you really don't find out who they are at all. You actually get more confused. Because what we like to portray is actually very contrary most of the time to who, actually, who we actually are as people. Is that not true? Would you agree with that? Okay, no, you're not convinced, so we're going to prove it tonight. I've got some pictures that I'd like to show you of people in this room. All right, the first picture. That's Brother Marty. Isn't that a good picture of Brother Marty? These people have no idea, by the way, that I'm doing this. So this is Brother Marty. Would you say that's a good picture? That portrays Brother Marty to be nice. He's smiling. He's excited. Where are you at, Brother Marty, in this picture? Yellowstone, Yellowstone National Park. He's got his camera in his hand. Go to the next one. All right. <laughs> this is a picture that your wife sent me. Your wife loves you. She told me to tell you she loves you, but she gave me that picture for the illustration tonight. That's Brother Marty. Go to the next one. Brother Chip. Hey, it's Brother Chip. At his birthday or something. Yeah, I know, I never see him smile either. All right, this is a good one. Go to the next one. Brother Chip. <laughs> the picture he wishes would die. <laughs> That's out of the yearbook, I think, at Heartland. Is that right? Yeah. All right, go to the next one. Brother Matt. Where's Brother Matt? Are you in here, Brother Matt? There he is. Hey, Brother Matt, are you on a ski lift? Okay, there's Brother Matt. <laughs> It's, I know. I'm going to sell all these pictures after service is over for a dollar a pop. I'm just kidding. Go to the next one. Oh, that's a good picture. That's Becky. Go to the next one. That's more of an accurate representation of who my wife is, actually. All right, go to the next one. Miss Ashley. Oh, she's going to hate me. Go to the next one. Miss Ashley. That one's actually on Facebook. I took that picture at a work day, and she's making, you can't really see it, but she's making a crazy face. All right, go to the next one. Good. Miss Sarah's not here, so I can really make fun of her. Miss Sarah and Brother Alex. All right, go to this one. I don't know if you can see it, but Sarah's falling asleep. I took this picture at camp. This was like two or three years ago, but Sarah is falling asleep while we're there, trying to be an example to the young people. And there she is, falling asleep. All right, you can, uh, you can uh, turn the lights back on. We like to do that. We like to portray uh, everything is positive, everything is good. We like for everybody to view our lives. We like to see the pictures like the first pictures, right? We want everybody to look at our lives and see the happy family. How many of you uh, send out Christmas cards still? You still send out Christmas cards? Just a handful, yeah. Uh, that's a lie. Every time that I look at a picture of anybody, any kind of family, especially those with kids, it is a lie from the pits because you know that Johnny and Susie are buddy-buddy and they're hugging each other and little, uh, a little spot is licking the face of Johnny. That's not how it is at all. Those of you who have ever taken family pictures know it is the worst experience and the worst comes out in people when they take family photos. But that's not what you get in the mail. What you get in the mail is the happy picture of the Jones family and everybody's excited and happy. And so I shared all that with you to kind of, you know, uh, we're poking a little bit of fun, but that's kind of how we work. Like, we, we, we want to paint our own narrative. We want everybody to view us in a positive light. We want the things that people see in our lives publicly to be a positive representation, right? 
And then who wouldn't want that kind of control? I'm not saying that it's bad. You say, Lamar, what do you want for us to display all the negative? Which, by the way, some of you do that on Facebook. Anyways, uh, I'm not saying that that's what we should do, that we should portray all the bad, but I'm simply saying that we like to have complete control of what we portray to others and how they view us publicly. As we look at the life of Joseph, God doesn't do that. As we look at the life of Joseph, we've already discovered that God does not spare any of the ugly. He shares it all with us. He shares the good in Joseph's life, but he also shares the bad. And when we get to, when we get to the life of Joseph and we think of the life of Joseph, our mind goes to a number of different things. Uh, maybe the coat of many colors. How many of you, when you think of Joseph, that's what you think of, is the coat of many colors. That's me. I think of uh, a Joseph in the coat of many colors that was given to him by Jacob. I think of uh, what about, uh, maybe you, you, like we talked about last week, him being lowered into the pit or thrown into the pit by his brother. Some of you think of that. Joseph's dreams. We think of Joseph's dreams. We think of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. We think of Joseph as the second in command in Egypt. We think of a ton of different things in the life of Joseph, some good, some bad, but I guarantee you no one in this room, when they think of the account of Joseph, thinks of Genesis chapter 38. Anybody? Surprise me. No one thinks of Genesis chapter number 38. It almost feels misplaced. When you look at Genesis chapter number 38 and the account that I just read that doesn't even mention Joseph, it feels so incredibly misplaced, it feels like it doesn't belong, you know? And, and we could go from Genesis chapter number 37 where we left off, where they sell Joseph into slavery, go right to Genesis chapter number 39, and the story would make complete sense. Why did God feel the need to put Genesis chapter number 38 in the account of Joseph? It's disgusting, it's wicked, it's graphic, and it ends abruptly, and we really don't know what happens until later in the Bible. Just a couple of days ago, me and my wife were watching a movie, and uh, this particular actor came out, and he's a buff guy, you know, a little bit buffer than me, just a little bit. And so he comes out, and he's got his shirt off, and I mean, he's just ripped. And he, you know what I did? I went over, and I covered the, the eyes of my wife. I didn't want her to see that. You say, why? Because that's not me. I don't want her to see that kind of stuff. Yeah, ladies, you're not the only one. You're not supposed to just cover your husband's eyes. Husband, you ought to co- uh, cover your wife's eyes, right? Okay, no one agreed with me there. But nonetheless, I covered her eyes. Why? Because it's inappropriate. I don't want her to see that. And in Genesis chapter number 38, God does not do that with us. He does not spare any of the graphic details. He does not cover our eyes. He shows us everything that happens in Genesis chapter number 38. It's graphic. It's wicked. But you know what else it is? It's Bible. It's Bible. Genesis, uh, not Genesis, but 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number, uh, uh, 2 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 16. We all know it. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is what? Profitable. We're going to find out. Genesis chapter number 38 is very profitable to the nation of Israel, and it's profitable to us. It's profitable to the series that we're preaching through. It's profitable to the life of Joseph. Genesis chapter number 38 is profitable. And as we get into this chapter, we've got the main character is the brother of Joseph. That's Judah. And in the previous chapter, we already referenced this, but we find Judah's plan being played out to sell his brother into slavery. A slavery That happened at the hand of Judah. And uh, sells him to the Midianites as they pass by. And so we need to understand, we're eventually going to find at the end of Judah's life that he really does accomplish some great things for God. We're thankful for Judah, and some of you who are students of the word of God know exactly where I'm going with this, but nonetheless, at this point in the life of Judah, he's not there yet. He is at a point of unyieldedness. He's at a point of unsurrender to the plan and the moving of the sovereign God. 
He's in direct opposition. It says that he goes down and separates himself from his brother, separates himself from, uh, from his father, and goes down to the land of Canaan. And so at this point, again, he is not fit and not prepared to do great things for God. He's actually doing the exact opposite. And so that's the Judah that we read about in Genesis chapter number 38. Again, it's a dark passage. It's a wicked passage, but it has something to teach us. And so for just a few moments tonight, I'd like us to pull some things out of Genesis 38. I'd like us to study it, put on our gloves and examine Genesis 38. Why did God put it in the Bible? It feels so misplaced. It feels, it's graphic, it's disgusting. What do we have to learn from it? So a few things I'd like us to notice. Number one, if you're taking notes tonight, I want you to notice the control of God. The control of God. Who was in control in Genesis chapter number 38? When you read Genesis 38, it can be very easy to come to the conclusion that God was not in control and Judah was actually in control. And again, the wickedness we read about in this passage is unfolding as a result of who? Judah. Judah is the one who got him into this mess. Judah is the one who's made all these bad decisions that we're going to read about, that we've already read about. And so as we progress through the life of Judah and even through the nation of Israel, we're going to find that what shook Judah and what shakes us did not shake God. A sovereign God was in complete control of the life of Judah. A few things quickly I'd like you to notice of God's control. Number one, I want you to notice Judah's sin. Judah's sin. I don't think I need to convince anybody after reading that passage that Judah is wicked to the core. Judah's vile. Judah is disgusting. Judah has his own fleshly agenda uh, in his mind. He wants to accomplish what Judah wants to accomplish, and what he wanted to accomplish was wickedness. So first of Judah's sin, there's a couple people he sinned against. Number one, he sinned against Joseph. We won't labor long on that. Genesis chapter number 37, at the end of the chapter, uh, we read in, in verse number 26, And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit uh, it, uh, if, it, uh, if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And so it was Judah's idea, it was Judah's plan, rather than to just leave him in the pit to die, to sell him for profit. We talked about that last week. So Judah sins against Joseph. Number two, Judah... Excuse me, Judah sins against Jacob. Where's that in the passage? Verse number one of our passage. You've got to understand, in this culture, it was very customary, it was appropriate for the father to be heavily involved in the betrothal period of his children, sons and daughters. Matter of fact, we read about it. That's exactly what Judah does with his son Ur. He didn't even give that own benefit to his father, and it was actually something that would be viewed as a disgrace. He leaves the, uh, the, the uh, umbrella of his father, and he leaves his brothers, and he goes, and he marries a woman. Uh, look at verse number one. It says, and it came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned to a certain Abdulamite whose name was Hira, and Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and went in unto her. And so not only did he leave and, and neglect the authority of his father, but to add insult to injury, the Bible says that it is a Canaanite woman. A Canaanite woman. He had no business uh, ha- having anything to do with anybody from Canaan, let alone marry someone from Canaan. And so he sins against Joseph. He sins against his father, number two, or excuse me, number three, Judah sins against Tamar. Judah sins against Tamar. we got to back up a little bit. So again, Judah marries this Canaanite woman, and she bears him three sons. We've got Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And so Ur's 15 minutes of fame didn't last very long, did it? Verse number 7, read with me. It says, And Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. <laughs> Lord took him out. And so he leaves Tamar, his wife, husbandless. She's a widow. And so uh, now Tamar, again, she has no husband. And so although the law of, uh, 
Leverett marriage isn't established until Leviticus. We're going to read that later in the book of Leviticus. The, the law that insinuates that what you're supposed to do is when you're married to someone and you pass, it is the responsibility of your brother to go in and to marry your wife. And so although this law was not in place yet, it was still very customary for that to take place. And it's obvious uh, uh, through the working out of Judah, he says, all right, Ur is out of the picture. Now Onan, what I want you to do is I want you to go in into your uh, brother's wife, Tamar, and I want you to take her to wife. And that did not sit very well with Onan, did it? We look at verse number nine. It says, And Onan knew that the seed should not be his, and it came to pass when he went in unto his brother's wife that he spilled it on the ground, lest that he should give seed to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, wherefore he slew him also. So God takes out Ur because he's wicked, and because of the wicked acts of Onan, God takes out Onan. How would you like to be Sheila at this point? Little brother, uh, yeah, I think I'll pass on, on the Tamar buffet. I'm going to actually go with somebody else. And so nonetheless, uh, Ju- uh, he's not of age yet. That's what the Bible insinuates. And so Judah makes this ar- arrangement with Tamar and become, uh, because Sheila is not of age yet. And so look at verse number 11. It says, then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow at thy father's house till Sheila, my son, be grown. For he said, lest peradventure he did also, uh, he die also and his, as his brethren did. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. And so, uh, so Judah makes this arrangement with Tamar. And the Bible says that through the passing of time, uh, that Judah's wife, his Canaanite wife, actually passes from the scene. She dies. She passes away. And so he goes up to this place called Timnath, uh, where his sheep shearers are. And he goes up to Timnath to check up on his sheep shearers and maybe participate in shearing some sheep. So look at verse number 12. And in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up unto his sheep shearers in Timnath, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goeth up to Timnath to shear his sheep. And she put, on her, uh, she put her widow's garment off from her and covered her with a veil and wrapped herself and, uh, and sat in an open place, which is, by the way, in Timnath. For she saw that Sheila was grown, and she was not given unto him to wife. And so Judah makes this arrangement with Tamar, but verse number 14 tells us that at this point uh, in the life of Shelah, that now he's grown and he's of age where he can marry. And you say, I don't see the deception. You've got to understand that this was a very severe covenant for any woman in the day of Judah. For a, for a woman to be, uh, 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 for a man and a woman to make a covenant, the woman could not break the covenant, especially someone who is not under the realm of authority, whether by a father figure or whether by a, uh, a husband figure. Both of her husbands have died, and so you understand that this agreement meant for the rest of Tamar's life that she could not marry unless it was by the covenant that he made with her. Do you understand that? The covenant that he made with her bound her and shackled her for the rest of her life to either marry Sheila or not marry at all. And so, again, uh, through the process of time, Judah goes up to Timnath, and he neglects the covenant that he made with Tamar. So Judah breaks this promise. Judah sins against Tamar. So we've got Judah's sin. Letter B, I want you to write this, this down. Judah's shame. Judah's shame. Judah has already lost two of his three sons, and now he's lost his Canaanite wife. And so uh, Judah leaves and goes up to the land of Timnath to shear his sheep with uh, Hira the Dulamite. 
And as he leaves from Timnath, the word gets through and goes over to Tamar. And Tamar gets word that he's leaving uh, the town and going up to Timnath to shear his sheep. And so look what happens in verse number 15. When Judah saw her, he thought her to be an harlot because she had covered her face. And he turned unto her by the way and said, Go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will thou give me and thou mayest, uh, that thou mayest come in unto me? And he said, I will send thee a kid of the flock. And, he said, wilt thou, and she said, Wilt thou give me a pledge till thou send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give thee? And she said, Thy signet and thy bracelet and thy staff that is in thine hand. And he gave it her and he came unto her and she conceived by him. By who? Her father-in-law. Disgusting. Talk about a soap opera. Talk about shame, the shame of Judah. We've got the sin of Judah. We've got the shame of Judah. Let her see. I want you to write this down. Tamar's seduction. We're real quick. We're real quick to throw Judah under the bus. The wicked acts that are recorded in Genesis 38, we kind of put Judah at the forefront of the wicked acts. But did you know that Tamar knew full and well what she was doing? The Bible says it. Let's not condemn Judah but without condemning Tamar. So Judah was, uh, again, he had no business going in into a harlot. We understand that, but at least he didn't know who she was. I'm not trying to belittle his sin, but he went into onto somebody that he didn't know who she was, but she knew full and well who he was. Look at verse number 16, and he turned unto her, by the way, we just read it, and said, Go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee, for he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. So he didn't know who she was, but she knew full and well that this was her father-in-law. Judah, if you won't give me your son, Sheila, I'll take you instead. If you won't come through on your covenant, I'll go in through into my, uh, you, can you wrap your mind around the graphicness? I'll go in unto my father-in-law and I'll conceive by you that way. Wickedness. Judah's sin led to his shame that came by the seduction of Tamar and it led to letter D, Judah's sons. Letter D, Judah's sons. Now Tamar is expecting sons by the seed of her father-in-law. I can't, I can't get over that. She's expecting sons, and notice it says twins are in her womb, by her father-in-law, Judah. So three months pass, and Tamar begins to show, and word gets back to Judah that his daughter-in-law is now expecting children, and at this point, he doesn't know that they're his children, and what is his response? He's ballistic. He's mad. He looks at her from the righteous indignation. He looks at her from the position of righteousness and says, how dare you break my covenant? How dare you, uh, it says that you, you, you conceive by whoredom, you whore. You go into somebody and you're going to conceive and you don't have the audacity, you don't have the, the character or the integrity to abide by the covenant. Do you guys understand what's going on here? I mean, that's messed up. Verse number 24, and it came to pass about three months after that, it was told Judah, saying, Tamar, thy daughter-in-law hath played the harlot, and, is also, uh, and also, behold, she is with child by whoredom. And Judah said, bring her forth, and what? Let her be burnt. <laughs> wow, really, Judah? So look at verse number 25. When she brought forth... Uh, excuse me, when she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, by the man whom these are, am I with child? And she said, and I want you to hear the sarcasm, discern, I pray thee, whose are these, the signet and the bracelet and the staff? Busted. Busted. Be sure your sin will find you out. But I want you to look at the response of Joseph, or excuse me, the response of Judah in verse number 26. 
He's busted. He's been exposed. His sin has been found out. And what does he say in verse number 26? And Judah acknowledged them and said, She hath been more righteous than I, because that I gave her, to, uh, gave her not to Sheila my son, and he knew her again no more. So by his daughter-in-law Tamar, Judah bears two sons. Judah bears two sons. We won't uh, read the rest of the passage, but the first uh, son's name is uh, Perez or Perez, which means breaking out. You're going to want to remember that here in just a moment. Uh, breaking out, that's Perez. And then you've got uh, the second son, uh, whose name was Zerah, which means scarlet, because she tied the scarlet, uh, scarlet thread to his hand. And so again, we've got a mess of a situation here. Would we agree with that? Everything is all undone. Go back to the question that I asked. How can a sovereign, how can a God, how can our God be sovereign and there be Genesis 38s in the Bible? This is a mess. Can I tell you something? That's what sin will do. Sin always makes a mess out of everything. Sin always breeds confusion. Sin always makes a mess. Sin always brings you shame. Sin will cost you far more than you want to pay. It'll take you farther than you want to go and it'll keep you longer than you want to stay. So that's, That's the wickedness that's recorded in Genesis chapter number 38. I told you again before, it's disgusting, it's graphic, it's nasty, and it feels out of place. It seems so out of place, a matter of fact, I read this week of two scholars that said that Genesis 38 doesn't belong in the account of Joseph, and one went as far as to say it doesn't even belong in the Word of God, it doesn't belong in the Bible. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Why? Genesis chapter number 26 is very pivotal in the life of, of the Israelites. I told you that at the beginning. Genesis chapter number 36 is, is one of the most pivotal verses in the Bible, out of the darkest chapter in the Bible. Even in the darkest hour in the life of Judah, even in very real sense, the darkest hour in the life of the nation of Israel, God is still sovereign, and God is still in control. So again, we see the control of God, but also I'd like you to notice this, number two. The conclusion from this story. The conclusion from this story. What can we learn from one of the darkest chapters in all of the Bible? What lessons can we see in this saga of sin? A few things quickly. I want you to write this down. Letter A. The concern of God for his people. The concern of God for his people. While all this is taking place in the land of Canaan, what is taking place in, in, in the land of Egypt? It's kind of like we've got two trains that are traveling simultaneously uh, and we get to get insight information as Judah's train goes and progresses and as Joseph's train goes and progresses. All the while that this is unfolding, we're going to find in Genesis chapter number 39 through 41, what's taking place in the life of Joseph. You see, Jacob's sons are intermarrying in Canaan with pagan women and making an absolute mess of the nation of Israel that is to come. All the while, Joseph is residing there in Egypt, following the sovereign hand of God and making a sanctuary for the mess that his brothers are in the process of creating. So watch this. Uh, In Egypt, uh, the family of Jacob would grow for 430 years. So they go down to the land of Egypt. We're going to read. And when they move down to the land of Egypt, God sets them apart in a place called Goshen. For 430 years, their nation would expand in the confines, uh, the confines of the land of Goshen. They would enter, uh, they, the, the, the progression of the nation of Israel and the expansion of the nation of Israel would happen in the camp of Goshen. All through the line, all through the line of the Israelites that were there in Goshen. Are you following what I'm saying? All through the line, the Abrahamic line that is very important to the nation of Israel. So God sets them apart in this place called Goshen. Why does he do that? God was protecting them from the mess that they made by sending them into captivity and preserving the seed of Abraham. 
So while Judah is up there making a mess of everything there in the land of Canaan, Joseph is down in, uh, in the land of Egypt setting the playing field for the deliverance of God for the nation of Israel. They were protected from intermarrying with the pagans in Egypt to protect the Abrahamic line that God had preserved in their seed. Do you understand how important that is? If they would have gotten mingled around with the Egyptians, that would have corrupted the seed of Abraham. And what that would have done is that would have made God a liar. Because what did God tell Abraham? Of thee I will make you a great nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. If they mess this up, if Judah messes this up, if any of the sons intermingling with uh, and marrying with the people of Egypt, it totally debacles all the promises of God in Genesis chapter 1 through 30, uh, 38. So God shows great concern for his people. But secondly, letter B, I want you to write this down. The contrast of the spirit and the flesh. The contrast of the spirit and the flesh. Joseph is in the, he's the greatest picture. We've mentioned this before, but Joseph is the greatest picture of the Old Testament, or excuse me, in the Old Testament of the New Testament, Jesus Christ. In Genesis chapter number 38, although we could separate the sins of Judah into several different categories, at its core, Judah had a problem with self. He had a problem with the flesh. He had a fleshly problem. Judah was a victim of his flesh. And so while all this is unfolding in the land of Canaan, we're going to see and find out that Joseph is experiencing a similar battle with the flesh in Egypt, but he's got a little bit more of a different outcome, doesn't he? We're going to read in just a couple of weeks the sexual temptation that Joseph has to endure and face at the hand of Potiphar's wife. And again, we're going to see that take place. How does he reject the temptation and, uh, and the uh, advancements of Potiphar's wife? I'll tell you how. Genesis chapter number 41, verse 38. It says, And Pharaoh said unto his servants, Can we find such a one as this is, a man in whom the Spirit of God is? Talk about a testimony. Joseph had the testimony as being filled with the Spirit of God. The contrast between these two brothers was not their situations. The contrast of these two brothers was not their environment. The contrast of these two brothers was not their upbringing. They came from the same lineage. They came from the same upbringing. And very, in a very real sense, they were in the same environment. They were in the world. But the contrast that separated these two brothers was that Judah fell. He was filled with the flesh, whereas Joseph was f- uh, filled with the spirit. Because Judah was filled with the flesh, it led to the death of his uh, first two sons, the defilement of his daughter-in-law, and the destruction of his family. But because Joseph was filled with the Spirit of God, it led to the rejection of the advancements of Potiphar's wife, the remembrance of the butler in his moment of need, and eventually to his rise to second in command in all of Egypt. What was the difference? One was filled with the flesh, the other was filled with the Spirit. Can I tell you something? When you follow after the things of the flesh, it will lead to Genesis 38 experiences guaranteed. Mark it down. When you live after your own flesh, when you begin to uh, go after your own desires and your own fleshly desires, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. It will lead to Genesis chapter number 38 experiences. But when you follow after the Spirit of God, it will lead you to exactly where God wants you to be. It leads you exactly where God wants you to, to go, where he can accomplish his will in your life. The concern of God for his people, the contrast of the spirit and the flesh. Thirdly, I want you to notice the corruption of sin in a family. Let her see the corruption of sin in a family. How many of you have been here uh, for the entirety of the series of Joseph for the past uh, five weeks? Okay, this will make sense to you. I'll explain it. But Genesis 38 destructions are usually Genesis 33 decisions. 
Genesis 38 destructions are usually Genesis 33 decisions. What happened in Genesis 33? Verse number 16, so Esau returned that day on his way unto Seir, and Jacob sojourned to Socketh and built him a house and made booze of his cattle. Therefore, the name of the place was called Socketh, and Jacob came to Shalem, a city of Shechem, in the land of where? Canaan. Had Jacob just gone to Seir like he committed to, like he was supposed to, there might not be a Genesis chapter number 38. Here's the takeaway from that. As spiritual leaders of the home, whether you're a father or a single mother, the decisions that you make while your children are young could very much lead them to Genesis chapter 38 experiences in the life of your children. Would you agree with that? The decisions that you make while your children are young are absolutely pivotal in their lives. Why? I understand that sin is absolutely a, you have to make a conscientious decision. Sin is not infused on anybody. It's a conscientious decision that we have to make. We learned a couple of weeks ago that we are not products of our environment, but we're products of what? Our decisions. But I'm simply going to imply, and I think that the scripture does too, that if Joseph would have gone to Seir, we might not have a Genesis 38 experience. But because he went to Socketh, because he went to the land of Shechem, there in Canaan, he set the playing field for the destruction of his son. The concern of God for his people, the contrast of the spirit and the flesh, the corruption of sin in a family. But lastly, letter D, the continuing story of God's grace. The continuing story of God's grace. In this passage, there are two extremes. There are two extremes. The first is the extreme depravity of man. The extreme depravity of man. The amount of wickedness and graphic destruction of the life of Judah recorded in Genesis chapter 38 might have led to some parents being uncomfortable with their children being in here. It's wicked. It's graphic. Genesis 38 is dark. But can I tell you something? Sin is dark. Sin is dark. The decisions that you make, they're dark decisions. When you choose to follow after the flesh versus being filled with the Spirit, it is a dark decision. And you will fill your lives with Genesis chapter 38. As human beings, we are, with a sin nature, we are capable of doing some incredibly wicked things. But the other extreme is far more drastic than the depravity of man. It is the extremeness of the grace of God. It is the extremeness of the grace of God. Where sin is great, great is, grace is greater still. Go to Genesis chapter number 49. Can we go on an adventure? I'm almost done. I'll be done in like 20, 30 minutes top. No, I'm just kidding. I want to go on an adventure. I want us to look at Genesis chapter number 49, and I'd like us to see something. In Genesis chapter number 49, I know it's going to be skipping ahead. We're going to go to several different verses, but I want you to tune in. I want you to listen. You can either turn or you can look on the screen, but Genesis chapter number 49, verses 8 through 12, it says in uh, Judah. Okay, so you need to understand, this is, this is Joseph. Joseph is coming to the end of his life, and he's uh, meeting with his sons, and he's bestowing the blessings, and he's beginning to give instructions if, if he should pass. And so he's giving this instruction. This is what he says to Judah. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stood, uh, he stooped, excuse me, down. He uh, crouched as a lion and as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? 
The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be, binding his fowl unto the vine, and his ass's colt unto the uh, choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine, and his teeth white with milk. Go to Genesis, or excuse me, go to Revelation chapter number five. Go from the first chapter in the Bible, go to the last chapter in the Bible. I promise it's all connected. Revelation chapter number five, verse number five, it says, And I saw in the, light, excuse me, in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within on the backside sealed with seven seals, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. Verse five. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of who? Judah. Judah. That Judah we just read about in, in, in Genesis chapter number 38, that's the, 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 the uh, Judah that he's talking about here in Revelation chapter number 5. Uh, a lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. So the Genesis chapter number 38, Judah, the one who has made an absolute mess of the nation of Israel, that's the line that God is going to bring forth his son, Jesus Christ. Go to Ruth chapter number 4. Ruth chapter number 4. Verse number 18 through 22. Now these are the generations of who? Say it again. Who? Look at the screen. Say it again. Who? Perez begat uh, Hezron, and Hezron begat Ram, and Ram begat uh, uh, Aminadab, and Aminadab begat uh, Nashon, and Nashon begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz, and Boaz begat uh, Obed, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat who? David. Go to Matthew chapter number one. Go to Matthew chapter number one and verse number three through five. I'm way more excited than anybody else I can see, but just bear with me. Matthew chapter number one, verses number three through verse number five. The book, excuse me, verse number one through verse number five. The book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse number two, Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren, and Judas begat who? And who? Of who? Thamar, Mike Tyson wrote Genesis chapter number, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Thamar, that's Tamar. That's Tamar that is recorded in Genesis chapter number 38 is referenced in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Let's keep reading. Go down to verse number six. And Jesse begat David the king. And David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. Fourteen generations. We skip down to verse number 16. And Jacob begat Joseph the husband of Mary of whom was born Jesus who is called Christ. So through this mess of a situation that Judah has gotten himself himself into, was the sovereign hand of God in control the whole time? Absolutely. God brings forth his son through this defiled, wicked, nasty, disgusting chapter that we read about in Genesis chapter number 38. Right there in the worst chapter in the Bible, in the darkest hour of Judah, in the depravity of Judah, God's sovereign hand was still in control. Was the sin great? One of the worst. Romans chapter number 5 and verse number 20 says, But where sin abounded, grace did what? Much more abound. From Genesis chapter number 38, God brings forth his son, Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's a drama story. 
It belongs, on, it belongs on Dr. Phil. Everything that occurred in Genesis chapter number 38 is some of the wicked, vile, darkest things that any man is capable of. But from the defilement of man, the destruction of man, from the darkest hour of man's depravity comes forth something far greater than anything that we could ever, uh, ever act upon, ever, ever do. Anything that we are ever, ever capable of accomplishing that is wicked is no match for the grace of God. What grace? Here's the conclusion. What was the turning point in the life of Judah? What changed in the life of Judah? What moment transformed the life of Judah? Lamar, we know. The sovereign hand of God, he leaned on the sovereign hand of God to guide and direct him in all that he said and did. Yes, God is sovereign, and we see God's fingerprints all throughout the life of Judah, all throughout the nation of Israel, and it comes forth his son, Jesus Christ. But I didn't ask that question. What was the turning point, the moment, for Judah. What changed in the life of Judah? Look at verse 26. Look at verse number 26. And Judah acknowledged them and said, She hath been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not to Sheila my son, and he knew her again no more. Judah had to acknowledge his sin and call it like it was. Judah was confronted with his sin, point blank period, it was there, there was no escaping it. Rather than making excuses, rather than pointing the finger at Tamar, he came to the end of himself and he says, you got me. I'm wicked, I'm vile. He acknowledged them and said, she is more righteous than I. But the end of that verse says that he knew her again no more. He had to come to the end of himself, but he also had to repent and not sin anymore. Talk about elementary, but talk about something that we miss as Christians on a daily basis. Oh, we know to acknowledge our sin, but it's as simple as not sinning anymore. We don't like to do that. Like a dog returning to his vomit, we come back to sin time and time and time and time again. Why? True repentance has not taken place. Did Judah really change going forward? That might be a question. Did Judah really change going forward? In Genesis chapter number 37, we read about, uh, again, we talked about it last week. Judah makes the recommendation to take the brother of, of, the, uh, excuse me, of, of, of his brothers. They decide to take Joseph and sell him to the Midianites into slavery. Genesis chapter number 38, one of the darkest chapters in all of the Bible. Ju- Judah is found performing one of the most wicked acts that could ever be mentioned among men. But Judah, uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter number 44, we're going to find this out in a Excuse me, we're going to find this out in a couple of weeks, but Genesis chapter number 44 tells us about how Joseph begins to test his brothers, and he brings them in, and they fill, they fill their uh, sacks with grain, and he puts gold and silver and precious stones and all of these different valuables into the bag of who? Benjamin. They go back. When they come back to Egypt, and Joseph puts on a show and says that, I want the head of the man who's stolen from me, who steps in the line of fire and offers to take his life in place of Benjamin? Judah. Judah. Went from selling his brother into slavery, defiling uh, the covenant that he made with, with Tamar, and then going into his daughter-in-law and performing one of the most wicked acts that could ever be named amongst men to Genesis chapter number 44, where he administers uh, a, a sacrifice. He wants to be the sacrifice. He wants, to be, uh, he wants to, him to take his life in place of his brother's life. What changed in the life of Judah? Grace. Grace changed in the life of Judah. Sin will make you do some pretty dumb things, but even the darkest chapters in your life are no match for the grace of God. 
But in order for you to experience that kind of grace, you've got to acknowledge sin and repent. You say, I'm saved. Wonderful. If you're not saved, the decision is easy. Acknowledge your sin and call upon the Savior and repent of your sin and he'll save you. That's the greatest display of grace. But what about for the believer? This message, this series is for the believer. On this side of the cross, what does grace do for you? When you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, it displayed the greatest gift that was ever given to man in grace. But, but you know what? Grace is the gift that keeps on giving and keeps on giving, even on this side of the cross. How many of you, since you accepted Jesus Christ, you've been perfect? Mm-mm. You need to come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain what? Mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We still need grace on this side of the cross. Grace is extended to the believer even in the darkest chapters of life. So here's the invitation tonight. Even though there may be some ugly chapters in your life, God wants to write the rest of your story. Even though there might be several Genesis 38 experiences in your life, God wants to write the rest of the story. Again, we like to control everything that is perceived by others of ourselves. but God knows our heart. God knows our wickedness. God knows us in our darkest hours. And he wants to extend grace, and he wants to see us grow. He wants to see, uh, he wants to see us accomplish great things, but it's not going to happen unless we take advantage of the grace he offers us on this side of the cross. So God wants to write the rest of our story, but he can't do that until we insert Genesis chapter number 38, verse 26 in our own lives. Recognize the sin, repent of the sin, and let grace write the rest of your story. Darkest chapter in all, I'm not going to say the darkest chapter in all the Bible, but in my opinion, one of the darkest Put on full display is the most wicked, the most vile, the most heinous acts that a man can perform. And out of it, God brings forth great victory because he is sovereign. And God wants to write the rest of our story because none of us are perfect. But it's not going to happen unless we acknowledge the sin, we repent of the sin, and we allow the grace to change us. So let's do that tonight. Let's stand and we'll have a brief uh, verse of invitation. I'll say a quick word and then...